Grace and peace be with you from the Lord Jesus Christ. Our sermon text comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verses 13 to 32. The Word of God reads, That very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones! And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And this is the word of the Lord. Well, today is Easter Sunday. It is the evening of Easter Sunday as we have our services late in the day. It's about the same time of the day that Cleopas and Mary, and Jesus walked with each other on the road to Emmaus. And so it's fitting for us to enter into this story at this time of the day to consider the risen Christ and what the Scriptures say about the risen Christ. 
And so let us walk along with these disciples of Jesus, eavesdrop on their conversation, and hear what Christ has to say to them and to us. There are four things I want us to consider. Four hooks to get us through the story. Blind eyes, biblical truths, broken bread, and burning hearts. Those are the four hooks that we will use to make our way through this story as we journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Blind eyes. The scripture says, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. The two who were walking and talking are two followers of Jesus who were close to the apostles, close to the group of people who were faithful and devout, people who were close to the situation, some who had been near enough the cross to witness the crucifixion of Jesus. The Gospel of John tells us that Mary, the wife of Clopas, was one of the witnesses who stood near the cross of Jesus Christ as he gave up his spirit and died. Clopas is a variant way of saying or writing the name Cleopas. And so many scholars have put two and two together and say these two disciples walking on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus are the husband and wife, Cleopas and Mary. They're on their way back home to Emmaus. And as they're walking along the road, they're doing the very thing the law of God said to do. The law of God commands us to Talk of the things of God when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. Cleopas and his wife Mary are talking about the things of God, specifically the things of God related to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And they're trying to make sense of the things that have happened in these days. They've expressed to this stranger who came alongside them that they had many hopes and dreams for this man named Jesus. They believed he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And yet over the last few days, they saw that dream turn into a nightmare. And it's the third day since he gave up his spirit And they're very confused because while they presumed him to still be in the grave, women from their inner circle, women that they knew and loved, women who were trustworthy and faithful, have reported that the tomb in which Jesus was laid is now empty. The apostles who were close to Jesus, a part of his inner circle, ran to the tomb and upon reaching the tomb, they found it also empty. And so their hearts and minds are full of questions and concerns and doubts and fears and dashed hopes. And along comes this stranger walking beside them. The stranger who 
is himself Jesus Christ, the risen one. The body in which he died is the body in which he was raised. And yet somehow through the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus, some kind of transformation has taken place on the one hand. But on the other hand, Luke tells us that the eyes of these two disciples, Cleopas and Mary, were kept from recognizing Jesus. The Greek word for kept here means that their eyes had been taken or held back or restrained from perceiving Jesus. In other words, in this moment, they are in effect spiritually blind to who Jesus is. It's not that there's enough. It's not that there wasn't enough light. It's just that they lack the ability to perceive the light. Jesus is close to them, walking alongside them, and yet they are kept from perceiving him. And this is all according to plan, because what is about to happen is Jesus comes alongside them and he begins to walk with them and he becomes their guide. He becomes their teacher. He becomes the one who guides them and leads them through the scriptures. And that moves us to the second hook, biblical truth. Now, Jesus speaks to these people and in response to uh, their statements and their questions and interactions, he refers to them as foolish ones and slow of heart to believe. If we're not careful, we might read that in a very harsh way, but Jesus did not intend to be harsh with these people. He knew them and loved them. I think that Jesus is sort of ribbing them a little bit. He's kind of poking at them a little bit. Maybe giving them a hint of who he is because he's used this kind of language with his disciples in other places at other times. And so we see here a little bit of the personality of Jesus coming through. Not only does Jesus poke fun at his friends here, but he played dumb, so to speak, when he said, what things are happening? What are you talking about? I don't understand what's been going on. But he's using those questions to draw truths out of his friends, to get them to think about the events of the last few days. And you could see as they talked about what they understood from the scriptures, that they were very close, pointed in the right direction of understanding the person and work of Jesus Christ. And yet they could only get so far on their own. And the events of the last few days have left them mystified. But then Jesus comes alongside them and he begins to talk to them and teach them and show them the way, the truth and the life. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And it makes you stop and think, what did the Scriptures say? What do the Scriptures say from the law to the prophets and the Psalms? Do they talk about the suffering of the Christ and His glory? Many Christians in the 21st century think about the sufferings of Christ once or twice a year. What they like to think about more than that is the glory of Christ. 
They certainly don't want to think about the suffering of Christ for themselves. They want to think about the glory of Christ for themselves. And it's out of that theology of glory that you have many health and wealth gospels being bantied about in the 21st century. But Jesus had a clear understanding of the scriptures and he says, look, the law and the prophets talk about the theology of suffering and the theology of glory that we're going to frame the life of the Christ. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. In our efforts here at Christ Covenant Church, we have through the years, try to do this kind of thing by showing you from the Old Testament that the Old Testament Scriptures centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ and pointed to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Years ago, when I was in a Bible institute, several of my teachers enjoyed preaching what they called the Genesis to Maps sermon. Genesis to Maps sermon. And they called it Genesis to Maps because they would begin in the book of Genesis and move all the way through to the book of Revelation, to the end of Revelation, and the next page was Maps. In many Bibles, you had maps in the back of the Bible. And so they called it the Genesis to Maps sermon. And they would show how the scarlet thread wove its way throughout all of the Bible. And that scarlet thread pointed to Jesus Christ. It's the kind of thing Jesus is doing, but not simply pointing out a scarlet thread, but pointing out That all of the scriptures from Moses to the prophets were about him. And we could do that kind of thing here. I'll give you a few examples. In the book of Genesis chapter 3, 15, we hear that the Spirit of God says that the seed of the woman would come and crush the serpent's head. The book of Exodus chapter 12 mentions the Passover lamb. And then we learn later that Jesus Christ is the true and better Passover lamb. The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The blood of the lamb that turns aside God's wrath and shelters his people in the household of God. The book of Leviticus chapter 16 mentions the atoning sacrifice on the day of atonement where two goats would be brought forward. One was slaughtered and offered up in sacrifice. The other would carry the sins of the people out into the wasteland. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice who lays down his life for his people and carries their sins far away from them. The book of Psalms 16, 22, 110, 118 all speak of the death, burial, and life of the Christ. And these are Psalms that were the prayers of Jesus and the prayers of God's people, pointing God's people to the person and work of Jesus. And last but not least, Isaiah 53 The chapter that speaks of the suffering servant of the Lord. The suffering servant of the Lord. A passage that mystified God's people for generations. 
There were those who wondered, is the prophet speaking of Moses somehow coming back to bear the sins of his people? Is the prophet speaking of himself somehow Isaiah becoming the suffering servant who would bear the sins and the reproach of his people? But it's not until Jesus Christ comes into the world that the Spirit of God unveils that it is Jesus who is the Savior. Jesus who is the suffering servant of the Lord. Jesus who took our stripes and by His wounds we are healed. Several years ago, Tim Keller did the Christian community a great favor when he walked through the Old Testament and showed us the kind of thing Jesus was showing Cleopas and Mary, that all of the scriptures do speak about him, about Jesus. And to give you a few examples of what Keller did, and you've heard us do these kinds of things as well. He pointed out that Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. That Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, his blood now cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. That Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void not knowing whither he went to create a new people of God. That Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mountain but was truly sacrificed for us, given over by his father for the sins of the world. That Jesus is the true and better Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. That Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses who with the rod of God's justice was struck And now gives water in the desert. And Jesus is the true and better Job. The truly innocent sufferer. Who then intercedes and saves even his stupid friends. And Jesus is the true and better David. Whose victory becomes his people's victory. Though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it in themselves. Tim Keller's point in doing this exercise is the same as Jesus's point in interpreting from the scriptures all that the scriptures had to say about him. The point is that the Bible, while it is good and useful and the Bible, while it's good for you and useful for you, the Bible's not really about you. It is about Jesus. Imagine that conversation Jesus in the flesh resurrected from the dead teaching and preaching and explaining and interpreting God's word for these disciples Jesus Christ himself is the key that unlocks the mysteries of God's holy word. 
And that brings us to the third hook, broken bread. Not only was Jesus breaking the word of life for these disciples, but Luke tells us that he acts as if he's going to keep going down the road. Mary and Cleopas invite him to come to the house and stay with them. It's getting late in the day. And so he's brought into the house and you know what it's like. You get home and people need to put their things down. They need to wash up. They need to get ready, go to the restroom. So not a lot of conversation happening in that moment. Mary begins to get food ready in the kitchen. Cleopas is playing host and making Jesus comfortable. And and finally they get to the table. Luke says that when Jesus was at table with them, He turned the tables on them. He turned the tables on them. And here's what I mean. He took the bread. He blessed the bread. He broke the bread. He gave the bread to them. And you see Jesus doing here what he has done in countless other places. The guest has become the host. One commentator says, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, reclining at a meal, or coming from a meal. And if you don't believe that's true, go back and read the gospel of Luke and you will see that very thing. It is not without cause that many of Jesus's critics called him a glutton and a drunkard. He spent that much time going to, sitting at, or coming from tables. He ate and drank with all kinds of people, outsiders and insiders, sinners and followers. Again, he ate and drank so much with so many people that his critics called him a glutton and a drunkard. Now, it doesn't mean he was a glutton and a drunkard. It just simply means that they were trying to find some way to characterize him. They were trying to find a flaw, a way to trap him in some way. And since he spent so much time going to, sitting at, or coming from tables, that's where they found a target. But it's important for us to know that Jesus' eating and drinking had a purpose. In fact, it had a few purposes. It had a missional purpose. It had a liturgical purpose. The missional purpose is seen in the fact that Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. That he ate with Pharisees, that he fed 5,000 out in the field, that he often ate in the home of Mary and Martha. It was there that theological and doctrinal controversies took place. He condemned the Pharisees and teachers of the law at a meal. It was also there where he had reminded his disciples of the importance of remembering the poor and bringing the poor to the table, bringing the needy and those who were on the outside to the table to eat. So there was a missional purpose to all of the eating and drinking. By sitting at tables with a variety of people, Jesus could get into their lives and they could get into his life. He could establish a point of contact with them and bring the good news of his life and mission to bear on their life. 
But it also had a liturgical purpose. A liturgical purpose. And we see that in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus sits with his disciples during the last Passover. What we call the Last Supper. It's the last Passover before the true and better Passover is instituted. And there Jesus established and instituted the Lord's Supper by taking the bread and saying, This is my body, which is for you, broken for you, given for you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. It's the cup of salvation. Drink it. And this meal is a memorial meal. It's not simply for you to remember what Jesus has done, but it's for God to remember what Christ has done for you. So remember when you have the bread in your hand and you have the cup in hand. Yes, you're remembering what Christ has done for you. But more importantly, God is remembering what Christ has done for you. He sees his body and his blood in your hands. And he remembers the death of Jesus Christ for you. And you are proclaiming the death of Jesus Christ until he comes. And so you see the proclamation of the gospel in, these visible, in this visible word. When we come to this table, Christ is still present with us. He's present with us mystically and spiritually by his spirit. And we see the body of Christ in each other. We see the body of Christ in the bread. We know that the body of Christ, which was dead, is now risen and seated at the right hand of God. And so there is a connection between heaven and earth, between Christ and the church in this moment. So there is a missional and a liturgical purpose to these tables. All the little tables are missional, but the big table is liturgical. This helps bridge the gap between the lost world and the Lord's table. Signposts bring us together. Now, you know tables are important, right? Tables are important because it's at tables that some of the most important things in our lives happen. Tables are the places where you eat and drink and share life. Tables are where you read mail and sign contracts and plead with your loved ones. Tables are where you drink coffee and play games. And Tables are, where, are places where you sit and wait and think. Tables are where you eat and drink and are merry. The table is the place in your family that brings everyone together. And the same holds true in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. This table is set before us front and center. The whole service centers around it, moves us to this table. Because here, when we come together, we will eat and drink with Christ and with one another. Now, the interesting thing about this story in Emmaus is that both the missional and the liturgical come together. Luke tells us something very interesting. He tells us that Jesus is the one who took the bread. He blessed the bread. He broke the bread. He gave the bread to Mary and Cleopas. And it was in that action 
of taking and blessing and breaking and giving that their eyes were opened. All this time, from the time he encountered them on the road, through all the time of walking them through the scriptures, until they came to the table, their eyes were kept from recognizing Jesus. But through this action of taking the bread and blessing the bread and giving the bread to them, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. They perceived him. They knew who he was. And no sooner did they get a glimpse of who Jesus was sitting in front of them, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, a man who had been dead just hours ago, he vanishes from their sight. They look at each other and they begin to process the experience and the events of the afternoon and the evening. And they say to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And that leads us to the fourth and final hook, burning hearts, burning hearts. You see, along the way, they knew something was happening. They were sensing a change. They could tell that hearts that had been cold were now beginning to warm. Hearts that had been shrouded in darkness were beginning to show sparks of life. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? Have you ever had an experience like that? Have you had an experience where in hearing the gospel proclaimed, in hearing an old truth proclaimed in a new way, and carrying on a conversation with a friend about the things of God, that suddenly light breaks through the darkness. Fire is ignited in your bones, in your soul. We've all had experiences like that. We've all had those kinds of things happen to us. I can think back to perhaps one of the first times I ever experienced anything like this. I was a teenager and my favorite band, U2, had just released the Joshua Tree album. I'd been reading my Bible, going to church, and trying to make sense of the things of God, trying to see how it all fit together, if it had anything to do with me. And I have a distinct memory of walking from my bedroom into what was the dining room in our house. So I was near the table. And as I made my way through the doorway uh, up next to the table, I hear Bono sing. You broke the thorns, you loosed the chains, you carried the cross of my shame. You know I believe it. And it stopped me dead in my tracks. For some reason in that moment, the story of the gospel came blaring through loud and clear into my ears and into my heart, into my consciousness. And it grabbed hold of my heart. 
Other people have experienced that kind of thing through gospel preaching or a conversation with someone. But for me, it was in that moment that my heart felt aflame. And it shouldn't surprise us that God would speak even through rock and roll music for all truth is God's truth. In that moment, I was hearing the gospel truth for the first time. Or we might even say again for the first time. Other people in the history of the church have experienced this kind of thing as well. The well-known story is told of John Wesley, who was the founder of the Methodist movement. Wesley struggled with faith and assurance through much of his life, and he often prayed, Lord, help my unbelief. He recounts how early one morning he got up to read the scriptures and he got up to read the scriptures and he read about the promises of God. And then later that same day, he went to a service and someone was reading from Luther's preface to the epistle of Romans. And Wesley said about 8.45 p.m. while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sin, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. I felt my heart strangely warmed. I'm not suggesting that any of you should rush out and seek for some kind of heart-warming experience as if you could make it happen. I'm simply trying to get you to see that when Christ becomes our guide through the Scriptures and the Spirit of Christ begins to work within us, kindling our hearts and preparing them for fire to fall. When the fire falls, it is the work of the Spirit of Christ and not our own. Cleopas and Mary said this is the third day since all of these things happened, since the Christ suffered and was crucified and buried. And here they are in the aftermath of watching the risen Lord Jesus Christ appear and then disappear from them. What we need to know is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead in space-time history. But it is not enough for us simply to know the facts of the matter. We don't want to be a people who say Jesus rose from the dead in space-time history the way we talk about other events in the world. What needs to happen for each and every one of us is that Jesus Christ must rise from the dead in our hearts and in our life. And it is in this movement, a movement from outward, outward evidence to inward experience that we find our hearts ignited and burning. Mary and Cleopas knew the outward evidence But by the work of the Spirit of Christ and the grace of the Word of God, they move from outward experience to, they move from outward evidence to inward experience.
Jesus rose from the dead in space-time history, but Jesus must also rise from the dead existentially in your heart and in your life. As the scripture says, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I want to conclude with a word from N.T. Wright in his little commentary, Luke for Everyone. He summarizes this story in a very nice and beautiful way when he says, The slow, sad dismay at the failure of human hopes, the turning to someone who might or might not help, the discovery that in Scripture, all unexpected, there lay keys which might unlock the central mysteries and enable us to find the truth, the sudden realization of Jesus himself present with us, warming our hearts with his truth, showing us himself as bread is broken, This describes the experience of innumerable Christians and indeed goes quite a long way to explaining what it is about the Christian faith that grasps us and holds us in the face of so much that is wrong with the world, with the church, and with ourselves.